the Old Testament, God raised up incredible heroes to accomplish His plan on earth. Oftentimes, they are portrayed as superhuman and near perfect, when in reality, they were normal, everyday men and women with strengths and weaknesses just like everyone else. In this series, CMC's pastors will share the stories of these heroes of faith and what we can learn from them as we pursue God's call on our lives. Join Associate Pastor Paul Kern as he teaches on Ezra and Nehemiah. Father, we just commit this time to you. Lord, help us to open our hearts and our minds. God, we went into all the trouble to be here and brave the weather. So God, we pray tonight that your Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts. And God, that we will walk away from this next 30 minutes here together, having got a hold more of your heart, of your mind, your purpose for our life, God, that we walk and fulfill what you have called each one of us individually to do. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to welcome you to session five in our series on Heroes of Faith. And I want to welcome those who are joining us by podcast also. We really appreciate our listeners who tune in uh, each and every week. This particular study, we're going to be looking at two heroes of faith tonight. So we're going to, get, we're going to tag team, and we're going to be covering Ezra and Nehemiah. So uh, I want to give you a little bit of gra- background because I, I don't imagine that Ezra or Nehemiah was in your devotional reading this morning. So um, I'm just going to take a little bit of time to give a little bit of background because I think it will be something that will be helpful to us as I get ready to kind of move in to lay a little groundwork about some really important strengths that these guys had and they walked in. Ezra and Nehemiah were two men that God raised up during a time of great struggle uh, in in the nation of Israel. And this era was the time of the Babylonian captivity. Now, there's been a lot of different time periods that God's people were taken captive. So we can look at the Persian Empire, we can look at the Assyrian Empire, we can look at the Babylonian Empire, we can look at the Roman Empire. And so these were all great world empires, and God's people, especially with the Assyrians, who they were held captive by before the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians rose up and to be the next world power, and then they took God's people into captivity. So this is during the time of the Babylonian captivity. And the walls of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem are both destroyed. They're completely demolished. And this was very significant because during this time period, during this dispensation of time, God connected with people through a physical temple. And it was very important that they had walls around their city because that was a border that protected them and kept them safe from invaders. So as a result of there being no temple and there being no wall, there was no way for God's people to interact with him. So you guys remember Moses and and I, I did Moses and we talked about how Moses was the bringer of the law. And so they learned how to interact with God, and their connection with God was by the law. And then God had them build the tabernacle, right, out in the wilderness. Now, they've moved past that point. We're way past that point, and they have a physical temple. Understand that, that 
You know, Jesus hasn't come yet. God hasn't even sent the Holy Spirit yet. So God wasn't living inside the hearts of men. God lived in a physical temple built with human hands. And because this temple was destroyed, there was no way for them to have any interaction with God. So this was tragic. I mean, this was awful. As a matter of fact, because they weren't doing what God had called them to do, they were under a curse. And that's why the people of Israel kept getting uh, taken into captivity. So they're taken captive. They've been exiled in Babylon. And God now comes and he raises up these two men, Ezra and Nehemiah, to lead the way to restore the lost ruins and to rebuild the temple and to restore the walls. Now, before I get into this, I just want to give you an interesting fact. So everybody go to Isaiah chapter 44. And I just want to give you something just kind of before we really start discussing these two guys, because this is really cool. In Isaiah chapter 44, we're going to look at verse 28, and we're just going to read a few verses together. And, and it may not make a whole lot of sense to you as I'm reading it, but once we're done, I'm going to give you a little bit of, of groundwork so that it'll really impact you, okay? So Isaiah 44, verse 28, when I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he will certainly do as I say, he will command, rebuild Jerusalem. He will say, restore the temple. This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose right hand he will empower. Before him, mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. Their fortress gates will be opened to never shut again. This is what the Lord says. I will go before you, Cyrus. I will level mountains. I will smash down gates of bronze. I will cut through bars of iron. I will give you treasures hidden in the darkness, secret riches. I will do this so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, the one who calls you by name. Now watch this. And why have I called you for this work? Why did I call you by name when you didn't even know me? It is for the sake of my servant Jacob, Israel, my chosen one. Now, as you read Ezra, one of the things that you'll notice is that the people wanted to exalt Cyrus. He was this monarch king, this pagan leader, and they wanted to exalt Cyrus because Cyrus allowed them to go back and rebuild. He was letting them go back and restore the lost ruins, so they wanted to exalt him. But here's something really, really cool. Isaiah prophesied this prophecy, specifically named Cyrus as the person who would allow them to go back and rebuild and guys, this happened 200 years before Cyrus was even born. Isn't that amazing? See, God moves in the affairs of men. You know, it, and obviously Israel was in dire straits. I mean, they were in a difficult place. And I think sometimes in life we can feel that way. We can feel like, God, do you even know what's going on in my life? God, do you even care what's going on in my life? God, do you see all the calamity that's happening all around me. But what I want you to understand and know tonight is that God has things in place before you even knew God had things in place. God is going before you and preparing a way for you before you ever even get there. Now that doesn't mean that we're not going to walk through hard things, but what it does mean is that God was preparing a way long before they even knew that they needed God to prepare a way. Can I have an amen? Isn't that awesome? 
So that's just a side note. That was free. That's kind of like the Jinsu knife set, right? It's just, you know, you just call now and you'll, you know how that works. So the first exodus was out of Egypt under Moses. The second exodus is out of Babylon under the headship of Ezra. Now, Zerubbabel, 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 I don't really know exactly how to say his name. How would you like to name your kid that? (laughs) Zerubbabel, come here. He headed the first return, and that was to go rebuild the temple. He took about 50,000 people with him to go back and to begin the work of restoring the temple, and they faced considerable opposition to this monumental project. But Zerubbabel and all of God's people got sidetracked while they were there. They went there to build God's house, but while they were there over a period of many, many years, they began to focus on building their house instead of building God's house. In church, we can't get ourselves in a position where we're more interested and focused on building our houses than we are on building God's house. Now, obviously, I know I'm preaching to the choir tonight because you all, all you guys are here. You know, you came out, and I appreciate that fact because it takes all of us to make up the body of Christ. You know, if we all had to say tonight, well, I really don't feel like, you know, coming to church. The weather's really bad. You know, it's raining. It's flooding. I don't really feel like coming. No, you felt a commitment to be here because you know God is establishing a work in our community here, and you understand that you are a part of that because we are the body of Christ. Amen? And so that's exactly what uh, we are seeing here as we see this taking place. Now, although the people had rebuilt the physical temple, they were still in really poor spiritual condition, and this is where Ezra really comes in and begins to play a role. Now understand, God's people have been in captivity for 70 years. 70 years they've been in captivity, okay? I'm just trying to lay a little groundwork for you in your mind, you know. Okay, wow, 70 years, you know, they've been living in another place and been in captivity, and now, you know, they've just been disconnected from God. So many years of living in a foreign land. So they have established homes. They have married foreign wives, They've had children with these foreign wives. They've started businesses. They're they're established. So Ezra comes along, and Ezra says, Hey guys, guess what? We've been doing this all wrong. We're going to have to travel 700 miles across the desert and go back and rebuild. And I can promise you guys, as you're reading Ezra, All of God's people didn't say, wow, that's a fantastic idea. I think that's exactly what we ought to do. No, they all looked at Ezra and went, for what? Why? We're we're here. We are established here. We're married. We have families. We're living life. See, this wasn't what they wanted to hear. And so they gave Ezra an extremely hard time because they had established their lives, they had married, they had raised their families, and they were doing their thing. Why travel back to Jerusalem? All right, so let's, let's just kind of drop in on this story. So turn to your Bibles, go to Ezra chapter 9. 
And we're going to drop in on this story. Ezra chapter 9, we're going to start with verse 1. When these things had been done, the Jewish leaders came to me and said, Ezra, many of the people of Israel and even some of the priests and the Levites have not kept themselves separate from other people living in the land. They have taken up the detestable practices of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites. For the men of Israel have married women from these people. They've taken them as their wives, even for their sons. So the holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. Worse yet, the leaders and the officials, even some of the priests, have led the way in this outrage. Well, when I heard this, I tore my cloak, I tore my shirt, I pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat down utterly shocked. Chapter 10, then Ezra, the priest, stood and said to them, you have committed a terrible sin. By marrying pagan women, you have increased Israel's guilt. So now, confess your sin to the Lord. Now watch this. And do what he demands. Separate yourself from the people of the land and from these pagan women. Did y'all just hear what he said? He just told them, after 70 years, even their children have intermarried with these mixed tribes of other people. Ezra comes to them and says, hey guys, I got bad news for you, but you got to divorce your wife and you got to leave these women. Could you imagine God giving you that task? of going to a bunch of people and saying, guys, you've been doing it all wrong. You've made a real mess out of this. You've married a bunch of foreign women that you weren't supposed to marry. You've allowed your children to intermarry with these mixed people. And this is not what God had in mind. And now what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to separate yourself from these people and you're going to have to travel away from them to go do what God has called you to do. And then Nehemiah took up the responsibility of, of, of this calling as he was Ezra's contemporary. And Nehemiah was tasked with rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. And he took this responsibility and calling. Very important. You know, imagine God asking you to reconstruct, to completely rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Jerusalem! I mean, that's like God coming to you and saying, and calling you by name. He comes and taps on your shoulder. Now, you just insert your name here. Insert name. I want you to go and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. That would be like rebuilding the walls around Los Angeles. And, and I want to kind of give you a picture so you, can, you guys can understand tonight the daunting task that God gave these men to fulfill his will, and to fulfill his plan. You know, we often catch ourselves praying, you know, God, use me. God, I want to be, how many, how many of y'all have ever prayed that prayer? God, use me. God, I want to be used by you. I want to do what you want me to do. 
until God says, all right, rebuild the wall. Well, am I going to have to sweat? I mean, is there going to be some, like, some digging involved? Like, axe and picks and shovels and stuff? I mean, is there going to be air conditioning? I mean, am I going to have a queen-size bed in my hotel room while I'm there, God? I mean, what exactly? Could you, can we talk about this a minute, right? I mean, that's kind of how we do, though. But, but God has come, and he's given these guys this incredible task, this, this monumental project. And these guys answer the call. And that's why we so admire and look up to these heroes of faith. And this is why we call them heroes of faith, because these were, were men and women of God who did great things. You just can't help but be amazed and impressed by the level of commitment and sacrifice that these guys did. And you know, as we're here tonight, God help all of us to be people who would be willing to do what you've called us to do to fulfill your plan and your purpose for our generation. Well, I want to take just a, a few minutes to look at just some real strengths of these two men. And, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Ezra, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Nehemiah. Uh, but I want to look at just a few strengths. Number one, number one, Ezra counted the cost, and he answered the call. Ezra counted the cost, and he answered the call. Ezra was a man of considerable power and influence. He was a priest. He had direct access to the king of Persia. Uh, he actually asked King Artaxerxes for permission to return to Jerusalem, and the king granted him what he asked for. So he it was in a position of real power, of comfort, of influence. But he left all that to do what God called him to do. His comfortable life or the position that he held or whatever it was that he had done to arrive at the place that he had arrived, none of that was more important than doing what God had called him to do. And it's important for us to do the same. We, you know, church, we have to be willing to step out of our comfortable lives to do whatever it is that God is calling us to do. You know, and ours may not be to go and rebuild a temple, but, but it may be to go and feed some hungry people. You know, ours might, may not be to go and rebuild a wall, but it may be to do something for our neighbor. You know, it may to be to, to do something for our church, to sacrifice some of our finances, or whatever it, you know, whatever it may be, we have to be willing to do that. Ezra was an established leader, he was in a position of great influence, yet he was sensitive enough to hear God's call, and he was courageous enough to step out and do what it is that God called him to do, and we have to be willing to do the same. I think for different leaders, and, and you know, we're all in different places in here, we have different positions and you know, we hold different areas of responsibility. And, and I've had the privilege of working with a lot of different leaders over the years and meeting a lot of different pastors and, and, and leaders in workplaces. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've noticed with some people is once they're established leaders and they've counted the cost, they kind of consider themselves to have paid their dues. You know, I've paid my dues. 
And they really view counting the cost as the price of getting started. But one of the things that I really appreciate about Ezra as I look at his life, Ezra viewed it as an ongoing walk of being intimate with God. He didn't see it as, I paid my dues in the beginning. He saw it as, no, this is a privilege for me to get to serve the Lord. This is a privilege for me to do what it is that God has called me to do. And, you know, whether you're in ministry or whether you work a secular job, it, you know, it doesn't really matter how long you've been there. I think it's important that each and every day we walk out our life with the best of our ability in front of the people that we do it with and set the best example that we can possibly set. Ezra counted the cost and he answered the call. Number two, Ezra was a man of holiness. Ezra really desired to get purity back into the heart of people, and he went against the mainstream of culture, trust me, because they had intermarried. They had all of these mixed marriages. One of the things that Ezra did, as, as we read the book of Ezra, Ezra wrote down the names of all of the people and even the leaders who refused to divorce their foreign wives. And he put them up on the entrance of the temple on the doorway so everybody in the public square could read about the people who were unwilling to do what God had called them to do. And he didn't care what other people thought. And church, we got to be that way. You know, we can't be more concerned with what our peer group thinks or what our co-workers think, or even what our family members think, than what God thinks. You know, I love that Ezra lived his life for an audience of one. What God thought was more important to him than what anybody else thought. And Ezra was willing to do whatever needed to be done and take whatever ridicule came his way to do what God wanted him to do. Because one of the things that Ezra understood is Ezra understood that God blessed nations. God blessed nations when they honored him and they did what he called them to do. And I, I don't know, there's just something about a leader who doesn't really care what everybody else thinks. They're just going to do what they believe is right. Whether what they're doing you may agree with or not, I can just respect somebody who is willing to stand up and do what they believe is the right thing to do, regardless of what anybody else thinks. And that's exactly what Ezra did. Ezra told the people, divorce from your foreign wives. These mixed marriages, they're making God's people impure. And you know, church tonight, we obviously understand that God's not for any particular race of people. God loves all people. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We know that God loves all people. But in the Bible, God was establishing something in the Old Testament. God was showing his people that he wanted a pure, holy people. You know, our theme this year is holy generation. And church, we can't mix with the things of the world. And that was the whole point of what God was trying to establish and develop in the thinking of people. We have to be willing to divorce ourselves from ungodly things in life. 
You know, there's things that as we go through life and, and we live our walk with the Lord, that we begin to take on little compromises. We allow certain things to coexist in our life, and ultimately we end up becoming intimate with, the, with these things, and we even marry these things into our life, and they become a part of our daily routine. And God is saying, no, you've got to divorce yourself from ungodly things in your life, because if you don't, those ungodly things will water down the call and the purity and the holiness that God has on your life. So we have to be willing to pay attention to how we entertain ourselves and what we listen to and who we spend our time with. Those things are very important to God. Why? Because all of those things influence our thinking and all those things influence our heart. And God says He wants us to have a pure mind and a pure heart. Those things are important to the Lord. Ezra lived his life for an audience of one because Ezra was a man of holiness. Number three. Number three. Ezra mourned over the sins of people. Soon after Ezra's group of exiles arrived back in Jerusalem, he heard that the priest and the people had been intermarrying. And, and we're just going to kind of revisit this topic. Look at verse 3 of chapter 9. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak. I poured hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. He sat appalled until the evening sacrifice when he fell on his knees and spread out his hands before the God at the temple. Sin grieved Ezra. It bothered him. It upset him. And as a student of Scripture, because he was a priest and he was reading the Scripture, as a student of Scripture, he knew God's holy standards. And as you read the book of Ezra, you see that Ezra spent a lot of time praying too. Ezra was a man of prayer. And one of the things that I've learned about people who pray a lot, they have an intimate relationship with God. They do. People who pray a lot are people who know God. They have an intimacy with the Lord. And Ezra had a God-centered perspective of sin because he was intimate with God. See, only people who walk intimately with God can appreciate how awful sin is. You know, I remember before I gave my heart to Christ, I didn't think anything about sinning didn't bother me at all. As a matter of fact, as many people as I could get involved in it with me as possible, that was even better. The more, the merrier. But when Christ came into my heart, man, I'm telling you, everything changed. Sin used to be something I enjoyed. It was something I agreed with. It was something I wanted everybody to do. But then after Christ came into my life, sin bothered me. It grieved me. I didn't agree with it. I didn't want to do it anymore. And when I did, I was quick to repent. It was like, God, forgive me. I don't want to be that kind of person anymore. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? I don't, want to, I don't want to live that kind of life anymore because God had done this work inside of my life. And we can clearly see that, that Ezra had a relationship with God because sin grieved him. Sin bothered him. He, and, and, I, and I believe only people that really know God can truly grieve and mourn over sin in their life. They grasp the greatness of God's grace and forgiveness. You know, I wake up in the morning, and, and, and honestly, 
You know, I, I think it's very important, church, for us to never forget where we come from. You know, you may have been saved a year ago. You may have been saved five years ago. It could have been 30 or 40 years ago for some of you. But you can't ever forget what God saved you from, what God pulled you out of. And, you know, we live in a place where we're always appreciative and grateful and thankful for the incredible grace that God shows us every day. I don't know about y'all, but I mean, I literally scratch my head sometimes and I just say, God, how do you put up with me? How in the world, why would you ever even want to be nice to me? Why do you do things for me like you do? God, I, I, you know, I get in a bad attitude and, and I treat people ugly and I think things sometimes that I know I shouldn't think. And I'm, why in the world, God? And it's all because of God's grace and it's all because of God's great love. And Ezra understood that. See, if our relationship with God isn't intimate, we will have a man-centered view of sin. We downplay its seriousness. We often defend people who habitually do it. We even agree with what they do. We like what they do. We heart what they do. But see, godly leaders, they hate sin. They grieve over it. And they want to walk right with God. And Ezra was that kind of leader. Number four, I want to talk about Nehemiah a little bit. Nehemiah was an authentic, godly leader. He was an authentic. In other words, he, he was real. He wasn't plastic. He wasn't fake. I don't know about you. I don't really get into fake people all that much. I don't like plastic people. When I talk to people and I meet them, and I find out they're plastic, it just kind of repels me because I'm just me. That's who I am. You know, I remember when my wife and I met, and she, will all, she knows this, and she's mentioned this several times, but I told my wife, I says, what you see is what you get. <clears throat> you know, I'm not, this is me. This is who I am. Nehemiah was an authentic, godly leader. He, he was a layman. He wasn't a priest like Ezra. He wasn't a prophet like Malachi. He was just a layman. He served the Persian king in a secular position before leading a group of Jews into Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls. And under Nehemiah's leadership, the Jews withstood a lot of opposition. They came under a lot of attack. As a matter of fact, you read the story, they got a sword in one hand and a brick in the other. And they're just trying to do what God had called them to do. Nehemiah gave up a position of power and comfort to get out alongside his fellow people, his fellow man, and begin to work with them. And one of the things that I love about Nehemiah is Nehemiah led by example. Man, I just respect leaders who lead by example. That's one of the things I've always appreciated about our lead pastor and a lot of the pastors here on staff, we, we have some great pastors here on staff, but these guys, they live it, guys. You know, we, we don't want to get up in the pulpit and preach something that we're not living out ourselves. Now, obviously, we're not perfect. That's why we all need Jesus, amen? 
But we do the best we can to live out what God has called us to live out, and Nehemiah was that kind of leader. You know, I think it's important for us, to the best of our ability, to say what the Apostle Paul said. Follow me as I follow Christ. Our friends, they need to see that our walk with God is deep, and it's real, and it's authentic. That we're the same on Friday and Saturday night as we are on Sunday morning at church. Our families need to see that our walk with God is real. Our children need to see that our walk with God is authentic and it's real. We model it in our homes by how we treat each other, by how we respond, by what we watch, by how we interact. You know, I have a poem that, that I love, and, and I've just had it in my heart for many, many years, and it's just something that I want to live my life by. But it says, I, w- I would rather see a sermon than to hear one any day. I would rather that you lead than merely point the way. The eye is a more eager pupil than ever was the ear. Advice is often confusing, but example is always clear. You know, we're called to live out what God has called us to live out. Nehemiah was authentic, but he wasn't just authentic. Nehemiah was godly. If you turn to Nehemiah chapter 13, and just for the sake of time, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and start reading the scripture and you can catch up with me. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1 through 9. It says, on that same day as the book of Moses was being read to the people, the passage was found that said, No Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God, for they had not provided the Israelites with food and water in the wilderness. Instead, they hired Balaam to curse them, and though God turned the curse into a blessing. And when this passage of the law was read, all the foreign descents were immediately excluded from the assembly. Before this had happened, Eliashib, the priest who had been appointed as a supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God, and who was also a relative of Tobiah, he had converted a large storage room and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. In other words, he's allowed his relative, Tobiah, to turn the storage room that is supposed to keep the sacred things of God in it, he's allowed Tobiah to turn it into a bachelor pad, and now Tobias, Tobias is living in here. And so he's reading this, and he's seeing this. He said the room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, the various articles for the temple, the tithes of grain, new wine, new olive oil, which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings for the priest. Now, I was not in Jerusalem at that time, for I had returned to king or taxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign, though I later asked permission to return. And when I arrived back in Jerusalem, I learned about Eliashib's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyard of the temple of, the, of God. I became very upset. I went up to that bachelor pad I started grabbing his couch, his chairs, his lamps, all of his furniture, everything that he had. I grabbed it and took it out of there. I threw all that stuff out in the front yard, and I demanded that the articles of God be restored back into that room. I mean, isn't that crazy? He just said, look, we're going to get things the way they need to be. It kind of reminds me of the same righteous indignation 
that Jesus had when he went and saw the Pharisees turning his father's house into an, a, a business exchange where people were coming and they were selling him sacrifices. Jesus got, y'all remember that? Jesus got so upset, he overturned the tables of the money changers. He even got a whip and started whipping people and driving them out of there because he, Jesus was a godly leader and he had a righteous indignation against people not doing things God's way. See, Nehemiah saw that Tobiah was allowed to do this. He got all of his stuff out. And I, and I think as a leader, he just wasn't willing to put up with things that he knew were wrong in God's eyes. And you know, I want to really address this, especially to our young people tonight. But guys, don't ever allow wickedness to go on in your schools or in your peer group. Because if you allow that to happen, guys, all it will do is water down everything that God is trying to do. And it'll turn you into a compromising leader, too, if you allow that stuff to exist. Now, I'm not saying you have to be a jerk or you have to be mean or ugly, but sometimes that means that you really have to take extra measures to make sure that things are done the way God wants them done. And as a leader, we can't be willing to put up with things that we know that God's not for. Doing God's will was an utmost priority to Nehemiah. What mattered to God mattered to him. What mattered to God needs to matter to us. Amen? Well, as I close tonight, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah show us the kind of significant impact one individual can have on a nation. I mean, literally, Ezra and Nehemiah were shakers and movers, but they were just one person. Ezra influenced as a priest to accomplish God's plan. Nehemiah served in secular offices, using his position to bring back order and stability and godliness. The fact is, God uses all manner of people in all manner of places, doing all manner of work. That's the way God works. You know, tonight as I close, I think sometimes it's, it's easy to feel like you have to be in ministry in order to serve God, but I want you to know that that's the furthest thing from the truth. Be encouraged. God is not limited by your vocation. God can use you wherever you are, doing whatever you're doing to be a great influence for His kingdom. In fact, God placed you where you are for a purpose. I believe that you have been divinely placed by God to do plumbing, to do welding, to be a stay-at-home mom, to be a, a, an insurance salesman, to be a student at school or at college, to be a server to be a waiter, to be a husband, to be a basketball coach, a ball coach, whatever it may be, God has placed you there for a purpose. <clears throat> and, and, and I think Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 sums it up really well. It says, have this attitude about your work. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to Him through God the Father. God tonight, help us be godly leaders of influence like Ezra 
in Nehemiah. Amen. You have been listening to the Christian Ministries Church weekly podcast. Join us next week in our Heroes of Faith series as we minister on Ruth.